Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is running expert and writer Martin Duggar. His 2011 book, To Be a Runner, straddled the line between personal narrative and instructional how-to, chronicling both his adventures in running and the life lessons learned along the way. Now in paperback with new material, To Be a Runner once again takes readers on Duggar's journey through the world of running and what it really means to integrate the sport into one's life. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Martin Duggard. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks. You are a writer and a runner. You've just come out with a book, To Be a Runner, How Racing Up Mountains, Running with the Bulls, or Just Taking on a 5K Makes You a Better Person, The World a Better Place. Those are bold, big claims for running, but I mean, you, you're, you know, there's that old hair club for men commercial, not just a, uh, the, I'm not the hair, the, the, just the president, I'm also a client. Like, you got your wife through running. I mean, you got some confidence after you were out of collegiate athletic shape, and after uh, getting back in a shape, you had the confidence to ask her out. Yeah, you know, um, it's a good story. It was just one of those those things where I just kind of let myself go for a while. I think a lot of runners do that when you you finish racing in college and you've been racing a long time. You want to you want to party it up and you want to maybe build the biceps a little bit too. And uh, it was only kind of when I got back in running that I kind of found myself again and found the confidence to ask out this this cute girl that uh, I've been flirting with for a couple of weeks. So you ran, you were your sport was cross country in college. Yeah, I ran uh, ran at North Michigan University. Um, so I was I was all state in California. Kind of started running when I was a little kid. I competed age group, ran in high school. My dad was an Air Force pilot, so we moved around a lot. So I was I was all state in Michigan, then uh, all CIF in California. Ran at NMU, and then uh, kind of took a sabbatical from running for a while. You know, lived on the peninsula of Newport Beach, which is a which is a den of iniquity. It was a uh, it was a lot of fun. So I, I guess you're thi- like you know. At that level, you're doing like, you know, five, five, five thirty, you know, miles in a 5K kind of thing, right? Like, I mean, you're, you're going pretty quick. And when you get out of shape and you start, you talk about, you have a great term in the book called base miles. You got to start doing this slow conversational miles. I mean, is that, how hard is it when you put on some extra weight, you're, you, you used to fly and you can't yeah. do that anymore. I mean, what what's, what's that? like as you're doing do you believe okay i can get it back you know it's a really good question because it's it's really super humbling because when you race like at the collegiate level you know you're knocking down you'll run a a five mile race or a or a 10k cross country race you're going sub five or right about five for the whole time um and it's easy you know i mean it's not easy easy but at the same time you you feel like you're cruising. You feel like you can do it. You know you can at will. You know then when you you let run and go for a little bit, you gain some weight. Um, it's and then you start kind of chugging along when you get back into it, and you find yourself getting passed by, you know, housewives pushing a baby jogger, and you know, and and you know, and people who you look at who don't look like they're very fit. Uh, and I'm kind of going through the same process right now. You know, all these years later, um, I had a, I had a knee surgery. I just spent some time writing a book. 
And I typically, when I'm working intensely on a book, I don't, I don't take time to get out of the chair. So, you know, I put on a few pounds and, and just this morning I went out and I ran for 30 minutes and I ran someplace where people could not see me because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to humiliate myself by, by just chugging along like that. What kind of pace were you running today? About 830. You that's know. still pretty good. You know, that's still not bad at all. Yeah, you know, but uh, it would be nice. It'd be nice to be able to just go out and run, you know, five, six miles at, at 630 or seven minute pace again. That, that would be, that'd be kind of a dream come true at this point. So, cause in, you know, in addition to, you know, just running myself, I also coach high school athletes and, uh, you know, and I've, I've got one guy who runs a 902 two mile, another guy who runs a 415 mile. And, uh, to watch them run reminds me of what it like used to be like when I could just you know, kind of fly a little bit. You know, I remember running, I remember reading something in a book called failure of nerves, failure of nerve, which is a book about leadership. And there's a chapter in there on emotional myths. They were talking about the person who first broke the four minute mile and somebody couldn't believe they did it. And, and an African runner said, I easy. I had to do it easy. He, he didn't have European coaches. And, and the idea was that this was this barrier that it was in the mind of people. It just wasn't possible. And this guy was trained by somebody that didn't have that barrier. I mean, I wonder how much I mean, you talk a lot in the book about how running isn't just a physical thing, but it's a mental and almost a spiritual thing for you. And I, I wonder how much running for you and, and, and how you've seen other people sort of smash emotional myths through running, things you think you can't do or things or, you know, artificial limits on yourself or something or, or, or paint or corners you paint yourself into that through just getting out there and putting one foot in front of the other things, you know, change the landscape changes. No, I agree. You know, and the, the thing about, uh, you know, there's, they're kind of phases of a, a running career. You, you know, you go from a newcomer to, you know, like for instance, my case, you know, you know, a, a new runner at a young age, then a, then a, then a, you know, then a competitor. And then, you know, at the point right now where I still run for, for fun and for, you know, kind of just peace of mind, but also uh, as, as, as a coach, I've kind of evolved into that capacity as well. And the thing I find is if people are consistent with it, if they get out there every day, if they challenge themselves, you know, it's just that, that thing there's there's that ideal you talk about the spiritual aspect i i kind of think that uh the process of becoming a runner is like is like anything that we do if you know if you're a poet or a singer songwriter or a writer and you want to write to be to the very best you don't write a story to be average that people don't want to read you want to write a story that people want to pick up and read and really enjoy you want to be the best you can at it and i think that's what happens when you when you run as well it's just you you're basically challenging yourself every day you're challenging yourself not to be mediocre i mean just the just the the process of you know putting your shoes on and taking that first step out of the door is is a decision to challenge yourself to push your your limits and you know it's not going to be completely pleasant you you know that you might chafe or you you might uh, i don't know pull a muscle or you might just you know, have a have a, a, a crisis of will because uh, maybe you don't want to run up that big hill and you'd rather just walk it. And anytime you make that decision to, to challenge yourself and push yourself in that direction, I think you become a better version of yourself. I, I, I'm curious, you, uh, you, you you said something interesting that when you write, you're not running, that you, you don't pull yourself out of the chair. I mean, do you think, is that like uh, ironic? I mean, because you talk a lot about just kind of how running enhances all of life. I mean, do you think you'd write better if you ran while you wrote? Well, you know, I've got a, on my watch, I've got a little reminder that to get up out, to stand up every hour and do something and you know, it's like, you know, when when you're a writer, you're alone in this solitary. I mean, I'm in my office right now. It's it's a little tiny cubicle, pretty much. Um, but when I'm in here, it's soundproof. I don't I don't bring my phone in with me. I don't do things that are going to distract me. And once I get locked into the written word, 
I ignore that little reminder to get up every hour because I just love what I'm doing. And so the process is I might sit here six, seven hours, you know, just riffing on whatever I'm working on. And then at the end of the day, it's like, oh, I still need to do something. You know, so you might squeeze instead of going for the 45-minute run, it might turn into a 15-minute run. And, and then, then there are those days it's not a run at all because, you know, you're just you're mentally fatigued. When, you, when your brain is fatigued, your body is fatigued. And so that's the thing. It's I'm a very full commitment person, total commitment person. So if I'm running, oops, I'm, all, I'm really running. But if I'm, if I'm writing, I'm really writing. So it's, it's kind of it's a conflict between my, between my two passions. You talk about solitude, you know, that, that running for you is a kind of time, although you do run with your wife, you have run, you say, I love you say it's a cheap date, you do a, a, a run and coffee and it's the best kind of dates. But you, you say often solitude is, is something you treasure and, and you, you're kind of hard on show runners, right? The people that are calling, they're, you know, 50 marathons, 50 days, they're calling publicists. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's just temperament, like introvert, extrovert stuff, or kind of like c- certain people are kind of by nature attention seekers and other people uh, some people find themselves in the crowd and some people find themselves alone or do you think there's something really about it about the showrunners that they're missing some of what you're talking about in the book no you've, that's, i've never heard that question before that's a really good question i think a lot of the people it's it is it's temperament i mean i'm an introvert you know my favorite thing you know i live 500 meters from a trailhead my favorite thing is to drop down on the trail, go out into the woods, you know, run, run alone and, you know, go as fast or as slow as I want and really just lose myself in the run. There are a lot of people, they have to run on the roads. They have to tell they have to post their run, all their runs on social media. Um, that's their jam. I get it. I mean, they, they drive me crazy. I find them very obnoxious, you know, and everybody, you know, people who are like, I'm going to want to do a marathon in every state or they want to do, you know, 50 marathons in 50 days. That's great, but I don't understand the need to put it out there so that the whole world is patting you on the back about that. I, I enjoy running as a very solitary pursuit um, that I do because it's for me. It's, it's it's something that I do because I love to do it. It's not something that the world needs to know about, and I've been doing it since I was six years old. You know, so it's fifty plus years as a runner, and it, it's just something that you know. I think if I was doing it to to please other people or to boast or to brag to other people. I would have quit doing it a long time ago. Do you think so? Because do you think there's something about the undergird you're writing? Because to be a writer and be one that's whose work has been read as much as yours has, you you have to have some ego, right? You have to have a desire to be recognized and put something out there that you think, hey, people should read this, right? So I wonder how much the running kind of uh, gives you the energy to to put something out there, you know, as opposed to for some people, the show running is their thing that's out there. You know, they don't have the writing thing. They have their Instagram or something. But for you, I mean, it's almost like it seems like the public side of you is the written word. And then you've got the running to kind of make sure that there's something in your soul that can crank out the written word, right? Yeah, you're good. Uh, yeah, no, there's there's a lot to that because, um, you know, for me, you know, if you talk to a lot of writers who, who make a living at it, um, it's a competitive pursuit. I mean, you want to write a book that people read. You want to get it out there in the marketplace. You want to make the New York Times list. And then once you've made it once, you want to, you want to make it again. And it's a very competitive uh, pastime. And uh, I'm kind of a little bit past that. But at the same time, I, I love when I'm on an airplane and I see somebody reading one of my books, for instance. You know, And, and that gives me this feeling like I somehow won. It's a victory in some way. Um, but then there are also times where um, the word is enough, you know, sitting down to write the process of writing and, and, and losing myself in it. There's kind of that, that, that there's a conflict there. 
but but you're right. I mean, even, even the fact that I'm appearing in your podcast here to pimp my book means that I care enough about selling books that uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, willing, I'm willing to get out of my comfort zone to do this. But you're right. Writing is my writing is my solitude. Writing itself, the act of writing, is solitude. But when it comes time. Uh, if if you write books and you are not competing, if you're not trying to actually sell books, if you're just writing books because you want to write stuff that makes you happy but nobody else wants to read, you're not going to make a living doing it. You know, you have to you have to want to be out there and be in the public eye at some point. And it's a tough market, right? I mean, it it, it it's harder to sell books. I mean, it's a saturated. I mean, it like I just have some friends in publishing, and it's just it's not easy to even write a book, and then it. It's even harder to sell books. I mean, to get something that, I mean, that's an undertaking and an accomplishment if it happened. Yeah, I remember, you know, William Goldman, the screenwriter, he just recently passed away. He had this saying that about Hollywood that nobody knows anything. And it's kind Was of the it, same. He, did he write The Princess Bride? He did. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, I did. I, yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Roach, Roach Casting the Sundance Kid, Princess Bride, he, was, he ghosted on a lot of scripts. Um, but it's the same thing with publishing. Nobody knows anything. You know, if you look at the New York Times list, some of the stuff that's on there, you 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 wonder how that became a bestseller, you know, and and so it's been shown that social media really isn't the easiest way to to sell books. It's been shown that you know the old the old book tour where you, you know, when you went city to city barnstorming to read your books in front of people, it's exhausting and it's fun, but at the same time, it doesn't really sell books. Nobody really knows what sells books. But the good news is, the you know the written word is not dead. People will will keep reading books for as long as there are people on this planet. Uh, the problem is the writers. You've got to find a, you've got to find an audience. You've got to build that audience, and you um, and that's hard. It's hard because you what you know, like for instance, if if I if I had my way, my next book would just be a very simple, quiet series of essays about uh, you know my own story as a writer and how I you know quit my corporate job to become a full time writer. But nobody would buy that book. I mean, somebody would. It might sell fifty thousand copies, but. At the end of the day, you want to you want to do better. You want to sell more. You want to keep you want to keep yourself on that big stage. So you've written you, you co-authored the Killing series with Bill O'Reilly, Killing Lincoln, Killing Jesus, Killing Patton, Killing. I mean, there's a lot of right. This is so. I mean, you guys have told the stories of a lot of killing. I, which is it, it's a fascinating title series. And Bill O'Reilly, I mean, that guy strikes me as no. You want to talk about somebody that has ego and needs to put themselves out there. I mean, he's a guy that had flair and whatever you think of him politically or his own troubles of, of, of recent years. Like the guy had flair as a broadcaster. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you look at Sean Hannity and he kind of seems like the guy that like there's a radio station in Long Island, like a high school radio station. And the kid is chunking on a Duncan, you know, something <laughs> like and and they're like, all right, they grab the janitor and just say, sit here, sit here for a minute and just say anything. And Kennedy's going to, hey, all right, hey, hey, you know, like, but I mean, O'Reilly is fascinating as a broadcaster. And, but I mean, that, but he's a person of controversy, you know, who courts controversy as someone who's introverted, who likes to be out there and have their work out there. But what is it like to have your name paired with somebody who is such a figure of controversy? I mean, is that blessing in disguise, agony, ecstasy? I mean, like, how is that for your career and just, you know, personally? Um, I mean, Bill's a dude. I mean, he, we, we don't talk politics when we work and it's so that's not even an aspect of it. I mean, we're the work is so focused on history, and the, the way we does work he just is, call you by your last name like Duggard? No, sometimes he'll, he'll it's uh he'll he'll do that, but because <laughs> that's all I mean. Stewart sign. You know, he just calls everybody yeah. their last names. It's so old school. Yeah, he's he's very old school. You know, he'll talk about. Uh, 
hey, how's your crew doing? You know, it's the kind of things like, you know, the sharks and the jets are going to appear somewhere. But, you know, there's the public bill there and then the, the private bill. And I'm, I'm blessed enough to have spent a lot of time with the private bill. And he, he's a, he's a solid guy. He's, he's a gentleman. He, he's a very, uh, he is really good with, with the narrative. And I will say this, as we craft these books, his ideas about how to bring the story to life are really good. I mean, so he's not, uh, there's this, this, uh, this group of people who believe that, you know, I write all the books and Bill just puts his name on them and nothing can be further from the truth. It's a complete, uh, it's a, it's a complete collaboration. You know, I'll, I'll dummy up some stuff. I'll send it to him. He'll rewrite some of the stuff. And then we kind of come together and blend our two versions. Um, but I will say this, it's, it's been a luxury in a lot of ways that I, don't, that I think that only um, people who write for a living can understand in that thanks to Bill's name, uh, we were, I was literally, I was with my, my cross country team training up in Mammoth, Mammoth Lakes, California. When I got a call to come to New York and meet with Bill about perhaps doing a history series, nobody thought it was going to sell. So his publisher at the time didn't want the history series. They only wanted political books. And, uh, what happens he went to a different publisher. Um, I got hired as, as the co-author and, um, how did the, he pick you? I mean, how do you get picked out of a line? I mean, did you have a previous relationship? I mean, was it, you know, no, how, how does it, that happen? It was funny because when we first started writing, I actually had to watch some. I didn't really, I, other than uh, some of his, I knew who Bill was, obviously, but I had never really watched the factor. So I had to sit down and watch some of the factor to kind of gauge his personality. But at the time we had the same agent. And so he made the introduction. I know that some other writers were, were in the queue Um and I'm not sure why exactly he picked me. I, I never really asked, but um, it's been. It good wasn't for me. a shared passion for running. I'm guessing. No, <laughs> no Bill doesn't. Bill doesn't. I'm not. Run. I'm not picturing Bill lacing up some Asics yeah. or. I'm not. When you talk about, you have a great. Uh, so you have a great portion of the book where you're talking about like it's so zen. Like you're talking about how the shoes find you, and you, it's just it's. And I, you know, I I run. I go on and off with running, and I've had these kind of experiences. I don't picture Bill walking in to Dick's Sporting Goods or a, or a boutique running short having a zen experience with shoes. That's probably you guys are bonded over zen shoe experiences my guess uh, every now and then uh, i'll be out on the trails and i'll get a call from bill and i'll stop and, and take the call and uh he, he's kind of bemused about the whole thing what are, what are you doing you out there doing that running thing and i'll go yeah i'm out here i go it was a, all right just give me a call when you get back you know it's one of those things uh, like a very old school long island um approach to stuff like that like distance running but uh but I, like i said it's been good for me it's you know it because he's such a public figure, I get the I get the the privilege of literally just sitting out of my office to write. Um, and this, like for instance, this was the first time since 2011 I've ever actually had to promote a book because Bill does all the promotion. I just sit down and I help help craft a book. And if there's a there's he, a period, he sells the books to the folks. Oh, he does. I love when yeah. he says the folks. That's where. I mean, we're doing this out here for the folk. I love yeah. that. It's great. Yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. 
to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Well, you know, the cool thing about it, too, is, you know, I live in a small town, so um, if, if thanks to, to Bill's fame, you know, I, I can kind of just keep going, coming and going like I want. So even though we've sold like 15 million of those books, Nobody knows who I am. So I can go to the grocery store. Nobody bugs me. I can go have a beer someplace. And no one's going to give me a hard time. I think it'd be a little bit different if I had more celebrity attached to the books. Has his own recent sort of struggle with the things, you know, the issues with women at Fox and everything. I mean, that's obviously changed his life radically, you know, because he's talking to three million you know people a, a, a night and you know now he's a podcaster which i mean i don't want to say that too derisively because i'm a podcaster <laughs> but it's a very different kind of thing i mean has that how has that changed your relationship i mean do, it, it, do you you know when all that went down are you saying hey bill how are you okay i mean how like is that did that change the nature of your working relationship are you guys still doing the killing series I and mean, like what oh yeah no, we just, uh, it was funny. There was somebody, as all this stuff was going down, you know, and uh, someone, someone on Twitter was like, said something like, uh, pity poor Martin Dugard, you know, because like as if I was going to, you know, suddenly take, you know, have live a life of poverty. Um, and actually, nothing has changed. We still write the books. We just finished the ninth in the series. We have a contract for another one. They still sell upwards of a million, a million copies every time they come out, which is down a little bit, admittedly, from when the glory days when Bill could sell them on the air every night. But the um, thing is, they're, they're really good history, and they're page-turning history as opposed to most academic history, which is, you know, you read two or three pages and you want to fall asleep. And we keep people turning the pages. Uh, and that's a good thing. And Bill has never let any of his his stuff get in the way with our relationship. Um, it's uh, I've really, you know, people who don't know don't really understand Bill, but he's he is a really solid individual, and I really enjoy working with him. I've heard that from a lot of I've heard a lot of people say that, and it's interesting to me too that you have a relationship with him that's disconnected from a cultural movement. It's it's interesting to me that you had to actually tune into the show to get you you never you you didn't know what talking points memo no. was or you know you didn't see him go to Kirsten Powers. Hey Powers, come on. Yeah, tell Powers, come on. Come on. The folks, the folks aren't believing it. But I mean that's that's interesting because my guess is there's not a lot of people. It's like they say about like presidents or something, you know that you, you they they don't make new fr- they they value their old friends who knew them before they were I mean it's interesting that you're probably one of the few people that developed a relationship with him at his heyday that didn't come into it with a whole kind of backstory of who Bill O'Reilly is. I mean I I just think because of his renown that's there's probably not a lot of people that have a relationship like you and he do. No, it's it's that's a good point. And he you know he values loyalty and I know 
there's we have a group. I'm not. I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it. It's kind of this this private group of guys that basically builds cronies. We get together and, and biannually and do a, a little adventure together. But by and large, most of those people are people he he's known for 30, 40, 50 years, and I'm kind of a newcomer to the group. But um, it's it's been. You know, when I when I kind of came into the the Bill O'Reilly world, it was uh, it's one of those things where you kind of start orbiting a, a different sun in some ways because as as I came into it and I realized the enormity of it and the the kind of people who, uh, I mean, he just has such a, a big audience even now. And he did one of his shows with Dennis Miller out here. He did at the at the Anaheim Pond a couple of years ago, and I he gave me tickets and I I took my wife and my father in law. And um, we're sitting in the audience, and the people around us uh, were all talking about Bill, Bill this, Bill that. My father-in-law, you know, he's he's proud of me. He he basically told everybody, "Hey, this is the guy that co-writes the Killing Books," and, and it was like this mob of people. All of a sudden, everybody turned and wanted to talk to me, and it was it was weird. It's a, it's a completely different culture, and um, but you know, but at the same time, people uh, that really enjoy the books and people that really. Um, like that connection with Bill. And I, I think he does make a very personal connection with his audience. So in preparation for our conversation today, after I've been doing this kind of high intensity interval training workout stuff, that's like 20, 22 minutes, but it's like, I mean, burn like almost three on count. It's crazy. But then I, I ran a 5k a couple weeks ago. I hadn't run in a little while. And, uh, and I ran like a mile today and I felt great because I had just done this high intensity workout. So I was so lubed and loose. Like I just, I ran kind of quick and it felt great. I, I, and I thought today, as I was running, I, I think I might want to get back into this. And you talk about base miles and sort of this importance of sort of, I feel like that mile was not the ideal for getting back into it. Like a 5k two weeks ago. And I mean, I'm pretty good shape. I work out every day, but that, but I noticed like for the shape I am in, which is pretty decent, still even the run, uh, I, I, you know, like the 5k, I felt like I was, I was sluggish for how, you know, the kind of shape I'm in. I mean, what that, that sort of kind of taking it easy and easing in is pretty important if you're going to get back on the horse or get on the horse. Right. Yeah. I mean, like at the start of every cross country season, we, I get a, I'll have 60 kids out there and about a third of them have never run before. And, you know, if I literally just had them go hardcore and like we did hill repeats the first day or something like that. Well, you know, they're, they're using muscles they haven't used before and their, their confidence to be shot because they'd be exhausted. You know, their lactate would, would, you know, overwhelm their, their system within within a short period of time. They probably want to quit. So so what I do is I I tell them to ease in, you know, um, run three minutes, then walk one minute, run three minutes, walk one minute, and then slowly just decrease the amount of walking you're doing. And then, then we can start working things about things like, you know, tempo and lactate threshold runs. And, and we do hit intervals probably two or three times a week. Um, the great thing about hit intervals is that, you know, when you when you do a long run, uh, it's the process of building mitochondria. Those are the, the building blocks of energy within the body. Well, hit intervals actually develop a very specific kind of mitochondria. And I'm getting into the weeds here, but which actually is specific to distance running. Um, and so if you combine some easy base miles with and continue to do, to do the hit intervals two or three times a week, you would find pretty quickly that you your body would would adapt to the running. You'd be just fine. And by and you say in the book that right, base miles, you should be able to talk during the run. You should not be dying. No. You, you should not be pushing your heart rate really super high so that you're, you you should you're really you're taking it easy and you're you're not overexerting, which is very hard to do, right? I mean, because sometimes you just want to throw yourself into it. Yeah, you know, and it's there are different kinds of of workouts. Like if if my team is doing 
an easy long run. And I'll tell them flat out, you should be able to have a conversation. Um, and then if we're doing more of a tempo effort, which is more of a, a three or four miles at a, at a pretty brisk pace, but not a race pace, I'll tell them you should be able to speak two sentences, three sentences. If you can speak a paragraph, you're going too slow. If you can only speak one word, you're going too fast. So it's, that's just a good test because the watch isn't always the best way to to, um, to evaluate those runs because I think sometimes when people start looking at the watch, they they think, oh, I should be running six minutes a while, but then then they're not, and then you know they feel bad about themselves or they're running six minutes a mile and that feels too slow because they didn't realize their fitness has improved and they should, you know, and they should be running like more like five thirty. So I think the talk test is a better way to gauge your perceived level of exertion. You have a pretty interesting section in the book where you, you talk about your running trespasses, by that I mean like running on golf courses and getting chased by a ranger and getting away. <laughs> this is, fa- it's just a fascinating kind of, idea that like you talk about just sort of the uh bio oh, there's a term bio uh yeah bio what's the term bio biophilia biophilia just love of bias right i was gonna say philia but i thought that sounded that seemed too easy but biophilia where like you basically talk about like being just immersed in the natural world and the golf courses are these great access to it quickly because you have all the smells and sounds and it's trimmed and and it's done in a way that's great like uh and yet it's a, a, a kind of strange thing for a runner, right? Because you're not a, it's a pay to play environment and you're not paying to play and running around. I mean, this is an interesting kind of affinity you've developed. <laughs> well, you got to be with the, the trick with golf courses, um, especially if, if you're traveling, especially, you know, uh, if you're staying at some kind of resort or something like that, you know, everybody's got a golf course, but you've got to get out there before the golfers. I mean, you, you've got to be out you got to be on the course before the sun comes up, you know, and far enough away from the first tees, you know, by the time the sun rises that you're not going to run into golfers. Every now and then you might run into a course marshal, but I mean, let's face it, the golf course, I mean, golf courses are great, but they're, they're a little bit wasted on golfers because I mean, just the, the grass is so soft and it's rolling terrain. It smells great. And it's, it's a beautiful, it's probably the best place in the world to run is golf courses. You share fact, this affinity with another celebrated writer. I'm sure you know who it is, right? No. Who's Ma- that? Malcolm Gladwell. Oh yeah. 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 You know, I, he did a whole podcast on this about golf courses and how much he loves running on them and how he, he, he hates that, how he hates like the tax breaks they get all this stuff. It's pretty fascinating. No, I heard that one. That was really, really good. I love revisionist history and it's a, uh, um, a geek out. As a matter of fact, I don't know if the, if the new season's out yet, but yeah, Can I ask you just an editorial question as a writer? Sure. Do you think that podcast would be better if the heroes and villains were not painted in such stark colors. I like, I feel like we tend to like in contemporary media and, 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 and literature, to, you know, you look at every serial drama, it's the antihero. It's where you can't tell between, you know, there's a little bit more gray. And it's interesting because in that podcast, you, you generally know pretty quickly who the good guys and the bad guys yeah. are. And, and I feel like one of the things that often kills good writing is moralism. Right. And, and yet for such a great writer, that seems lost on him on that podcast to some degree. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I hadn't thought about that. I I think because you know his his regular writing is not like that, and I think maybe in the podcast format uh, it adds more dramatic structure to do that. And uh, but I, I know what you mean because <laughs> sometimes you listen to some of those things, and by the end you really hate the bad the bad people, and you really love the good people. You know, and but but maybe that's what keeps us listening. You know, I don't know. I've never tried a podcast. I mean, it would, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I just think there are other narrative podcasts like Invisibilia or Serial or other or This American Life, or the, where the, the there's much more interpretive judgment left to the listener, 
as opposed to I think I mean he still tells a great story yeah. but but again it's almost like you know one of these things where you see this is why right like the like you know left wing or right wing right whether it's a left wing activist thing or it's the new sort of Christian drama films you know where the where the it, it, student debates the philosophy professor and proves that God exists or whatever where it's just you know the heroes and villains too much it's too much like an old western going in to keep your attention you know right well. It's a good point, you know. You know, obviously going back to the Bill O'Reilly thing, you know, and I, I've seen kind of the the sharp definition between the right and the left in politics and the in the whole hero and villain thing, uh, really up close and personal in these last few years. And I kind of I kind of hate the way that we um, and look at people that are public figures. You know, no nobody makes them, nobody forces them to be public figures. People people uh, people volunteer to be famous. But when you put yourself out there like that. Uh, the things that people say about famous people, the, the way they dissect famous people, the way that they tear them down and make assumptions about them, um, it's it, you know it, we make they can either be a hero or a villain. And when people uh, take that tact with people, they, I think they forget that they're human beings at the same time. And um, and you know after you know this, these these past few years, I I have, I used to be one of those people that you know you you make a judgment about a movie star or somebody like that or. You know, their movie or and I've, I'm not as critical about people um, as I used to be just because I've seen the, the the pain that it causes people yeah I mean it's interesting because like as a writer you know the reality of you put your work out there and you lose control of it right it's interpreted how it's interpreted it's received how it's in- received yeah. and, and public figures like that are doing that with the text of their lives right which is uh and you're right i mean you got to have a certain drive to do it but it, it also is something which you have to have some empathy for the for the precarious nature of the whole endeavor right well you know the, the job of a writer is to have a point of view and but anytime you have a point of view, you open your, yourself up to criticism from people who have an opposing point of view. I mean, you know, take this running book, for instance, when it first came out in hardcore. So the, this is the paperback version. The hardcore came out in 2011. Hardcover, hardcore, hardcover came out in 2011. Um, so this new edition of the book has new essays. It's got, you know, new epilogue and new, you know, a new postscript. Um, so it's in many ways it was a brand new book. But when it first came out, Everybody's got their own spin on what running should be like, and I had I was attacked by people who said it was too elitist, or you know that it didn't match up their definition of their their personal experience as a runner. Um, and I think you know go back to the Malcolm Gladwell thing. I think that you know when somebody has a point of view like that and takes the risk of having a point of view, it opens up the debate we're having right now about whether it's too stark with too too black and white, or if there should be more gray area. Um, and, and but I think anytime you you write a book or put yourself out there, you open yourself up to scrutiny. Do do writers come to you for advice? Uh, not really. You know, I mean, I live in a like I said, I live in a small town. Um, I'm not like a Tom Wolf where I walk around in a white suit and a in a Panama hat. Although you uh, have run in you, 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 right white pants, right? Like running with the bulls. Yeah, around with the bulls. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a great story too. I mean, you're, it's funny because you're telling this story and it's such gripping prose because you're, you're just going back and forth with this guy and about pants because you're running with the bulls and, and this whole thing about pants and you're and and you're thinking where's this going and, and and I'm like, well, this is interesting. Just this this gesture he offers you and you're trying to say, hey, I'm a 32, you're a 36, and all this. Uh, but then it leads to this running with the bulls. And this beautiful meditation at the end on human excellence and all through this sort of figuring out what's the right thing to wear while running with the bulls you all of a sudden have this transcendent moment where in this matter you you see what excellence looks like well you know thank you um i like 
I go back to what I said earlier in the podcast. It's I think that anytime you you run, you seek to become a better version of yourself. And I think, for instance, I think that's one of the reasons we we love watching the Olympic Games. It's not necessarily because we love track and field or swimming or badminton or any of those things. As a matter of fact, except for the time that they're in the Olympic Games, we barely watch them at all. But when we watch the Olympic Games, we're watching people who are the human ideal of excellence. And there's something that I think we all innately, even if we don't think of ourselves as athletic or competitive, we all aspire to be excellent in something, you know? And I, I think it's, you know, to get spiritual about it, it's, it's, it's like trying to find a version of what uh, God created us to be. Does, did he create us to be average and slovenly? I know. I think that God created us to be uh, uh, the best version of ourselves possible. And so when we watch people achieving that through the Olympic Games, I think we get that, that very aspirational quality of running that, that comes through when we, we challenge ourselves to do something like run with the bulls and something we didn't think we could do. And, you know, running with the bulls is a little bit terrifying. But then, then you get that moment where you run into the arena, you get 10,000 people on their feet cheering for you, and you feel like you did something really cool. And then, of course, when a bull lines you up and tries to runs you out of the arena, uh, it's, that's got a pretty good adrenaline rush with it, too. So I stepped on my own question, but I do want to ask you, like, is someone, you might not get much ad- solicitation of advice from writers, but I'm wondering, what would the difference between coaching runners and coaching writers look like? You know, I, I taught college. I was an adjunct professor at a local college for a while. Um, and, and the thing about it is, is runners, it, it's, a, it's innately competitive. When you coach distance runners, you are trying to train them to become fast, period, and to win races. When you, when you kind of coach, for lack of a better word, writers, everybody has their own, their own process. And, you know, and I try to tell people, you know, it just starts with simple storytelling. You know, you, everything's got to have a beginning, a middle, and then it's got to have a narrative arc. But a lot of people, it was, it's kind of discouraging. Some of the kids I, I taught, they didn't care about, you know, the punctuation. They didn't care about making sure that the story was cohesive. Um, but then they would write it in a way as if it was the best thing ever written. How dare anybody criticize it? And I found it very, very frustrating. And if, you know, the the one thing about if, if, if I was to give advice to any writer is it is just the, the mind is a muscle and you have to you have to you have to train as a writer like you train for a runner as a runner, which means you have to do it every day. And if I, I look at back to some of the stuff I wrote when I first began writing professionally back in the late 80s and it's crap, it's horrible stuff. And I remember reading it at the time and thinking, this is as good as I'm ever going to write. But the the fact that a, I had bills to pay, so I had to have the discipline of writing every day with mortgage and kids. But the, the process of writing every single day has made me the writer that I am now. And I'm hoping that the, the next 30 years of writing will make me an even better writer. But it's it's the process of actually working at it, getting getting out there every day and doing it, just like running. If you don't have a writing project, like if you don't have a book that you're working on, do you still write every day just to keep the muscle going? Or do you have to have a book contract, a, a magazine article or something to do it every day? No, I, I do it every day. I mean, so we finished the new Killing book. We submitted the manuscript two weeks ago. Um, I went into my laptop the next morning and I looked at some projects that I'd been kind of poking around at a little bit. You know, one is that collection of essays we talked about. One is a screenplay that I'd I kind of written poorly. I wanted to go back and revise. And one is a, a fiction piece that that I've been thinking about for a long time. So I've just been kind of playing with stuff for a while, which is a nice luxury. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna write a new book of my own before we write the new killing book. So within the next six months, I'm going to write another book uh, of my own project. I just don't know which it's going to be. 
But realistically, I mean, writing isn't, it is manual labor. It's, it's hard work, but at the same time, walking out to my office and firing up the laptop and just kind of starting to mess around with some words, it's, it's what I do. It's what makes me happy. You know, it's, it's, it's a great way to spend the day. Yeah. I mean, I, I would encourage you about just the essays of being a writer. Cause I, when I picked up your book, I didn't know what to expect. I, I have run at different points in my life and I'm thinking about getting kind of back into, I've run, run a little more over the past few weeks, but I felt like it's running as a window into you, which is really interesting. Like, I mean, you, you tell some great stories about your life that are also universal. I mean, everybody's struggling with acceptance and letting themselves go and, and, Wanting to be excellent and also dealing with failure and, 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 and also aging and, you know, and, and, you know, not being able to recreate your glory days all the, you know, all the time. I mean, that's, that's a really kind of interesting lens. So, I mean, I feel like the book is, is something that you wouldn't have to be a runner to appreciate, right? I mean, it, it's kind of, it, it's, it's a great lens on just life because oh. even though it's your life, it seems like you've mined it deeply enough to, that it speaks to just life in general. Uh, well, thanks. I mean, that, that was kind of the, you know, I had written, I mean, as I look at my library here, like I've got at least four or five books that are just great books of essays, you know, like Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird and Traveling Mercies and Adam Gopnik's book, Paris to the Moon. Um, and I'd always wanted to write just essays because they're easy. You can, you can sit down and just kind of vomit on the page and, you know, put a thousand words out pretty quickly. And if you go back and clean it up and if it makes sense then you can really tell a story with it and you can kind of build on that story. And so it, it was a luxury to do that. And I literally, when I wrote this book, uh, my agent and I, uh, Eric Simonoff, who represents some of the best writers in the business, we had long had a pact that I was not going to give him a running book because running books are usually just those simple, you know, couch to 5k how to books. And Which you can do on an app right now, right? I mean, like that, that, I mean, technology has kind of made that book obsolete. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I thought there was room for something that might be just a little bit more ethereal and you're right. And and it's, it's not completely masturbatory to write a collection of essays about yourself and your point of view, but sometimes it feels that way. It's like, does anybody care about what I have to say about this? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no, but I had to make people care about my point of view. And so what I did was I wrote this, I've never done this book before, but I wrote this entire book, soup to nuts, like literally the entire book, polished it up, printed the whole thing out, actually tied it in a red ribbon and FedExed it to my agent. And I said, look, if it's shit, throw it away. Don't even try it. If if they think it's good, let's try and sell it. And he liked it and he's not a runner. So that that made me feel like I was getting my point across. Well, it's a great book. And I, again, I think it's, it's a book for runners and non-runners, people that think about the journey of life and and, and how to sort of run proverbially on that. And, and, you know, who knows for the non-runners, they might go and have the Zen-like experience in the shoe store and actually go out and do a few miles. Well, I mean, that's kind of my hope because here's the thing, the, the really hardcore diehard runners, they're going to read this thing. Oh, uh, okay. I could write this book too. Then, you know, and, and they they might throw it against the wall, but I think people who are new runners who are thinking about running or people who just want to read some interesting stories, like, you know, about running with the bulls or, you know, mountain biking, Saipan, you know, you know all the kind of some of the travel stuff that's in there. I, I would hope that they would find a level of inspiration in it because it, at the end of the day, this really is a love letter to a sport that has kept me sane. I would even say kept me alive during some dark times when I was in my twenties. 
And well, um, what was darkest about those times for you? Oh man, I was lost. And it was the years when I wasn't running and I just, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't feel like, uh, I had any, I felt like I was just going to become one of those people who worked in a cubicle this rest of his life and wasn't just going to, I wasn't going to get to see the world. I wasn't going to get to chase my dreams. I was just going to kind of be this lonely, pathetic guy, just, you know, just trying to eke out a living. And I just didn't know where, you know, I, I kind of had lost all hope my early twenties and there were, you know, that's a it, tough age to lose hope too. Cause oftentimes that's it. You know, life hasn't totally sucked it out of you yet. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I think what happened too, you know, when you finish college, you, you've kind of got to use a bill term. You've got your crew in college. You've got like all your buddies that you hang out with, uh, that you party with, that you study with, that you, you know, take a road trip with. And that all goes away at the end of college. And all of a sudden you, you kind of all by yourself out there trying to figure out what, what comes next in life. And, um, and it, it, I think it helps to have something like running or some kind of outlet, physical outlet, and I'm just not just talking about any outlet, but an actual physical endorphin-producing outlet to to kind of give you perspective and give you a little a little bit jolt of of uh, dopamine to make sure that your you, your mood doesn't uh, go to the toilet every day. Well, it's a great book, and thanks for writing it, and thanks for I'm, I'm glad running got you out of the hole so that you could write it and, and write you know all the great stuff you've written and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it oh you know what this you're great this has been an amazing podcast thanks for having me on ah, really hey the pleasure was all mine all right thanks thanks for listening to give and take if you liked what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Martin for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, To Be a Runner. Whether you're a runner or not, I promise it's well worth your while. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.